If you would uh, take a Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8 this morning, our plan is to consider together 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 as we're working our way through uh, Paul's letter. So a little bit of an unusual circumstance that our projector is out, and so we won't have the uh, scripture passages up on the screen behind me. I'll try to read a little more slowly as I'm uh, hitting those things and letting you know the references since they won't be uh, up on the screen. But I think you'll be greatly helped. It's a long passage. I'm not going to read it all uh, at once, but I'm going to be referring to it as we go through. So I think you'll be greatly helped uh, by having that open. So before we begin looking at uh, the text, uh, if you're familiar with this passage, you know that in it, the Apostle Paul is asking the Corinthian church to help meet the needs of Christians in Jerusalem who were experiencing great poverty and need. So this is a, uh, a text that is uh, about giving money. And I, I fear that many of us don't look forward to these kinds of sermons. A and we might think about them a couple of different ways. So maybe you've been around church for a long time and you understand that this idea of giving is a necessary evil. So you're an adult, you know how the world works, right? If you want lights and heat and air conditioning, right? If you want someone to spend the week trying to put together a halfway decent sermon, you understand these things cost money. And so you give, but you kind of feel the same way about it that you feel about paying your electrical bill. It's just the sort of price of doing business. Maybe you're a skeptic. So you're suspicious of organized religion, but for some reason you found yourself here on a Sunday morning. And, you know, here's another example, right? You come to church, and of course they're talking about money. Or maybe you're a rule keeper. And so you actually don't mind giving money because in the long run, it's actually not that difficult, right? Of all the things that God asks from us in terms of our, our love and our personal holiness, writing a check is actually not the hardest thing you could do. And so if you can do something to make God happy, right, and then cross that off your list, well, that's not so bad. But if you come to this passage today in any one of those ways, my guess is that you're not really excited about the prospect of, of thinking through uh, the idea of generosity. But I want to suggest that your ambivalence or perhaps even your aversion to thinking about being generous in giving away your money if you feel that, I, I think that aversion or that ambivalence might be rooted in actually a very deep misunderstanding of God and a real misunderstanding of the world that we live in. Because I believe if we really understand God and if we understand the world that he created, if we really get the essence of the universe that we live in, I think we would actually be joyful at the prospect of giving away what we have. So let me explain what I mean. I think we start with the idea that you and I, and, and everything in the created world are completely, utterly, 100% unnecessary. Here's how Christopher Watkin, a Christian author, a lecturer based in Australia, here's how he puts it. He says, the universe is not necessary. And God did not create because he had to. God did not make the universe to satisfy something that was incomplete in him. He does not need the universe in order to be who he is. And he does not need us in order to be fulfilled. Neither we nor the universe are necessary. We may be important, precious, glorious even, but preciously and gloriously unnecessary. He goes on to say, I cannot overstress how fundamental and distinctive this figure is to a Christian view of reality. God doesn't need us. We aren't necessary. We know this is true, of course, because the Bible tells us. Right? This was the Apostle Paul's message uh, when he stood on the Areopagus in Athens. He's speaking to uh, pagan philosophers and, and listeners, people who had no knowledge of God, no knowledge of the Old Testament scriptures. And so Paul begins his theology lesson. The very first thing he feels like these people misunderstand about God is this very fact that, that God doesn't need them, that they aren't necessary. So in Acts chapter 17, verses 24 to 25, Paul says this to the people of Athens, the God who made the world and everything in it 
being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Right? Paul's message is God made everything. He doesn't need anything. And in fact, he gives everything. And brothers and sisters, that means that God is a giver. He made the world not to address some lack in himself, but he made the world as an act of superabundance. God made the world as an overflow, right? An overflow of his love and creativity and beauty and joy. God didn't make the world because he lacked something. God made the world because he had so much of everything. So God creates not in order to receive something from us, but to, in a sense, create an arena in which he can give. This leads us to what Watkin and others call the gratuity of the universe. So when we speak about gratuity, we're, we're talking about the fact that the world is a gift, freely given. Right? Gratuity, in this sense, is the opposite of obligatory. Right? God's creation of the world is an act of grace, not something done out of duty, not something done because of necessity, but something given out of free pleasure. This gratuity is at the foundation of the world that we live in. Okay, now why is that important? Well, every other account of the world, every other way of making sense of how we got here, whether it's the materialist with his sort of random chance, or, or even any other kind of religious explanation, it leaves us in a world, any other explanation, besides God's free and gracious creation, leaves us in a world that is at its root a marketplace, that is at its root a transaction, a world where everything is bartered, where God has something I need and I have something he needs. And so we work out a mutually beneficial arrangement and no doubt he's the stronger party but, but he kind of lets me know what the terms are, and then I live them out, right? So I offer God a sacrifice. I pray. I offer, perform some religious duty. I don't know why that thrills God so much, but I do it. That scratches some divine itch. And in return, I can expect that he's going to do things for me. But friends, that's not the Bible's story. That's not how it works. So Watkin continues on in his book. He says, the Bible makes a mockery of this, this idea of the world as a marketplace. What deal can we strike with God when he gives us everything we have? The Bible's picture of human beings is not wheelers and dealers in the corporate boardroom signing contracts with the God or ultimate reality in order to get ahead. Listen, he says, instead, so according to the Bible, instead, we are joyful children on Christmas morning receiving unexpectedly lavish gifts from loving parents. Free gift, not contractual obligation, is at the heart of the Bible's picture of reality. And here's the thing, I think that this truth, that the reality uh, of the universe is that it's fundamentally gracious, it's a gift, the fact that God is a giver and we are the receivers, I think that, that truth is what's sort of standing as the foundation of everything that Paul says to the Corinthian church here in chapters 8 and 9. I think that's the sort of the, the foundation on which these chapters rest. This is what Paul assumes about God and about the world. So let me draw your attention. Again, if you have your Bible open, I want to draw your attention to some specific words uh, that you can, depending on your scruples, if you want to underline these words or highlight them on your screen or just notice them, that's fine. If you're using the Pew Bible, I would say don't write in it, but again, that's up to you. Just notice these words in the text. So in chapter 8, I want to bring your attention to 10 words. In chapter 8, you see verse 1, the word grace, right? The grace of God. In verse 4, you see the word favor, or depending on your translation, it might say privilege. In verse 6, that same, uh, that word is grace, uh, or, or you might say generosity, depending on your translation. Again, in verse 7, the same word, grace or generosity. Verse 9 of chapter 8, you have the word grace. 
right? Verse 16 of chapter 8, the word thanks, right? It says, thanks be to God. All the way down in verse 19 of chapter 8, uh, you see the word grace, or again, it might be generosity in your translation. When you get to chapter 9 in verse 8, the word is grace. Uh, verse 14, again, grace. Finally, verse 15, the word is a gift. Okay, why do I draw your attention to those 10 words in these two chapters? Well, all of those 10 words are, are the same word in Greek, the word charis. Right? It's a word with a big semantic range. It can indicate grace, generosity, kindness, favor, privilege, gift, an expression of gratitude, enablement. But this charis, this grace, is at the heart of God's creation. And it's at the heart of what the Apostle Paul wants to say to the church at Corinth about their money here in chapters 8 and 9. Ten times in these two chapters, he uses this word. It's, it's foundational to everything that Paul is understanding. This is, this is a matter of grace. When Paul calls God's people to generosity, it's rooted in grace. So if you're feeling skeptical or ambivalent or even burdened by the prospect of considering a passage of Scripture that talks about giving money, then what I want you to see this morning is that what God really wants to talk to you about is, is not primarily your checkbook. I don't know if people have checkbooks anymore, right? Not the banking app on your phone. What God wants to talk to you about is grace. What concerns the apostle is not what we are giving to God, but the apostle wants us to see what God has given to us. And so Paul transitions here in chapter 8, as I mentioned, to ask the Corinthians for money. And in fact, in all these two chapters, there's only one imperative. There's only one command. Again, that's significant. 39 verses in two chapters, and Paul spends 38 of them telling the Corinthians what is true. And only one actually instructing them what they're supposed to do. So I'll, let's jump right to the imperative there. Uh, chapter 8, verse 8. The Apostle Paul tells the church what he wants them to do. He says, uh, oh, I'm sorry, um, before we get there, just draw in verse 8, look at this. Paul, Paul explicitly says it here. He says, I, I say this not as a command. Right, again, he, he's not being heavy-handed. He's not laying down the law for the Corinthians. He says, verse 8 of chapter 8, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love is also genuine. Right? The, the instructions Paul's giving here, he's saying, look, I'm, I'm not even giving you a command. I'm, I'm calling on you to do something out of love. Right? And so that's the, command, that's the context in which the imperative finally comes. So look there in chapter 8, verses 10 and 11. He says, in this matter, so chapter 8, verse 10, in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now... And here's the command, finish doing it well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Now, it's clear that we're in the middle of something with a backstory there, right? Paul talks about the work that the Corinthians began a year ago in verse 10. His command, the instruction in this chapter, in these chapters, is to finish the work that they began a year ago, so that the desire, right, the expressed wish is matched by their action. Basically, you said you wanted to do this, so now it's time to actually do it. Okay, so we need some background to understand what's happening here. The work that Paul wants the church at Corinth to finish or complete is a collection of money for the, the struggling church in Jerusalem. So why is that collection important? Well, one of the most sort of urgent and existential crises that, that faced the early church had to do with how Gentiles, so non-Jews who became followers of Jesus, how those Gentiles were supposed to relate to Jewish believers. So historically, part of Jewish piety was having nothing to do with Gentiles, right? Nothing to do with unclean pagans. And so that wasn't a huge problem for the Christian church at first because it, it started amongst Jews in Jerusalem, and so everything was pretty clean and tidy. But suddenly, as you read the book of Acts and you see the church beginning to spread, by the time you get to Acts chapter 10, now Gentiles are repenting of their sins and putting their trust in Christ, and they want in. They want into the church. But culturally, religiously, 
they weren't Jewish at all. And so you have this tension. How do Jews and Gentiles relate to one another in this, this thing, this Christian church? Should Jews just love and accept Gentiles as they are? Or should Gentile Christians become like Jews in order to live at peace with their Jewish brothers and sisters? So we read in Acts 15 that the leadership of the early church held a meeting to decide what to do about these Gentiles who came to Christ. And their conclusion was that actually Gentiles shouldn't have to live like Jews in order to be Christians. Right? That's a massive decision that shapes the history of the church. Right? And here's how Paul summarized the result of that meeting in Galatians 2. So in Galatians 2, verses 9 to 10, Paul tells us about this meeting to discuss how Jews and Gentiles relate to each other. Paul says, when James and Cephas, that's Peter, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, so that we could go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Now listen, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. They resolved the religious question, you don't have to be a Jew in order to be a Christian, and they also addressed the social question. They asked Paul if, if he would remember the poor, if he would ask the Gentile churches to remember their poor brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. We know that a terrible famine struck the, the region around Jerusalem probably in the early 50s AD. Right? So this was a critical issue. The idea was to build some sense of love and solidarity between Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians as these Gentiles cared for and provided for their needy brothers and sisters back in Jerusalem. And so what you see in the book of Acts and in Paul's letters is that he was very devoted to collecting this money from the Gentile churches to, to care for the church back in Jerusalem. So at the end of 1 Corinthians, he writes to the church in 1 Corinthians 16, 1-3, he says, now, concerning the collection for the saints, that is, this collection, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you would credit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. So Paul's telling the members of the church at Corinth, put aside some money for this collection, he was planning to go to them, and he wanted, he wanted everything to be ready when he got there. All right, Paul was very concerned that the Gentile churches that he had spent so much time and energy fighting for and planting, that they would rise to the occasion. Right, he was very concerned that the money would reach Jerusalem safely and, and in such a way that there were no doubts about what had happened to it. Right, in our passage for this morning, we see those concerns. So in chapter 8, verses 16 to 23. I won't take time to read it, but you can see there, Paul tells the church that he's sending Titus to them. Right, remember from last week's sermon, we saw that the church there in Corinth loved and respected Titus. So he says, I'm sending you Titus, who, who you know. And he said, I'm sending two other men as well. There in verse 18, he says, I'm sending a brother who is famous throughout the churches for his preaching of the gospel. So we don't know who that guy is, but I'd like to meet him. Also, in verse 22, he says, they're sending a brother who's been tested and found earnest in many matters. Right? We, don't, we don't know who those last two men are, but Titus and two very well-respected, well-known brothers. And so Paul is concerned, not only that the, the collection be carried out with integrity, but that the, it, the integrity of it be obvious to everyone. Right? It's a good model for churches, even now, I think, with regard to finances. Be honest, but also conduct our financial affairs in such a way that people can see that we're being honest. But it's not just integrity that Paul has in mind. He knew there was great symbolic value in these Gentile churches providing for Jewish Christians. And the Corinthians had taken a lead in that regard. And so it was important that they come through with their promise to give. So there at the end of chapter 8, in verse 24... In the beginning of chapter 9, we read this. Paul says, chapter 8, verse 24. So give proof before the churches of your love and of our boasting about you to these men. So that is Titus and the, the two other men that he was sending. Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. For I know your readiness 
of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you're not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you've promised, so that it may be willing as a gift and not as an exaction. So Paul wants the church to have their gift ready. Right? The zeal of the Corinthians, right? so Corinth is in the Roman province of Achaia, it has, it has spread, the, the news, right, mostly through Paul's boasting of them, has spread now, Paul says, into Macedonia and stirred up the churches in Macedonia up in the north. And so the apostle wants to avoid an uncomfortable situation where he arrives with some Macedonian brothers and sisters, having talked about how excited and earnest the Corinthians were and finding that actually they didn't have any money raised at all. So on the surface, that's the reason for Paul's command. That's the reason for the imperative that we saw, where Paul says, finish the collection that you started a year ago. But as I said, there's something actually much deeper going on here, a much deeper reason that motivates Paul to call the church to generous giving. And that is the grace of God. Paul ultimately isn't concerned so much with sort of being embarrassed when he shows up. He's not so much concerned with making sure the Corinthians you know, keep their word. Now, what really is on Paul's mind in this passage is the grace of God. And so at the time we have left this morning, which I recognize is not a lot, I want to investigate the way that we see in this passage that God's grace is, in a sense, contagious. Because God has created this world as an act of grace, as, as a gift, that grace flows through everything. So first, let's see that God is a gracious giver. We'll be brief there because we've already talked about it. Second, we'll see the way that God's gracious gift, for lack of a better word, infects God's people. And then finally, we will see how that God's gracious giving infects people through God's people. So it spreads from God's people uh, all around the world. So first, let's see that God is a gracious giver. Again, we're at the the foundation of the universe in which we live, the gratuity of the universe, the generosity and grace of God, where everything comes back not to our giving but to God's. So Paul puts it beautifully there in chapter 8, verse 9. He says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. So how does Paul describe the grace of God in terms of a gift? The Father's gift of his precious Son for us. You see, in eternity, in heaven, the Son of God enjoyed riches, splendor, and glory beyond anything that we could ever imagine. But he came here, from there to here, taking on human flesh, with all of its limitations, all of its weakness, all of its poverty. He lived as a poor man. He died without a possession to his name. And Jesus didn't do that primarily to set an example for us, though it is an example for us. But instead, he willingly stepped into unimaginable suffering on the cross so that you and I could be the recipients of incalculable spiritual riches. So on the cross, Jesus became as poor physically and spiritually, as you could possibly be, right? So he was incredibly wealthy, incredibly powerful, incredibly blessed in all eternity in heaven. And he, he went as low as you can go on the cross, taking on himself all of our sin, all of our guilt, all of our shame, right? All of our spiritual and physical poverty, Jesus took on himself, and then he rose from the dead, in victory over all of those things so that we could be incalculably rich, spiritually speaking, forgiven our sins, welcomed into God's family, made heirs of eternal riches. And importantly, God insists that that incredible wealth that Jesus died to bring to us, it can only be received as a gift. 
You cannot earn it. It's something that has to be taken as a free and unmerited gift of grace. Okay, so hold on to that thought. Jesus came to us, became poor so that we might become rich. Now look down in chapter 9, where we see that the generosity of God that marks him in the spiritual realm also carries over into the physical or the material realm. So chapter 9, verse 8, he says, and God is able, I'm sorry, this is verse, yeah, chapter 9, verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. See, Paul understands that God is able to make all grace abound to you. What does that grace look like? Well, it means that the Corinthians have all sufficiency in all things at all times. Right? They have no lack spiritually or physically. Right? Paul is reminding the church that they're not living in a universe where their survival depends most basically on them. They're not living in a world where they're the ones responsible for their day-to-day living. Paul says God is able to make all grace. And here, grace seems to particularly mean provision for physical needs. He's able to make that grace, he says, not, not trickle to them, not drip slowly to them, but he says he's able to make it abound to them. Therefore, they can be certain of Paul says, sufficiency for all things. The Corinthians didn't have to worry that if they gave money to the saints in Jerusalem, they wouldn't have enough for their own needs. Paul's understanding of God is that he is a gracious, generous giver. Again, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this. We touched on it at the beginning. But this is the foundation on which everything else rests, that God is the gracious giver in this relationship. He gave his son, the Lord Jesus, though he was rich, became poor for our sake so that by his poverty we might become rich. God gave us the most precious, wonderful gift he could possibly give, his own son. And so the promise of every other lesser gift, like money and food, is included in that larger gift. Remember what Paul told the church at Rome in Romans 8.32. He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul says God gave us Jesus. Jesus, though he was rich, became poor. So we can be sure that he will graciously give us everything we need. God is the gracious giver. And that leads us then to Paul's main burden in these chapters, which is to encourage gracious generosity in the Corinthians. This is our second point this morning. We see what's on Paul's mind, that God's gracious giving to us has a way of, of, of spreading through us. Right? God gives, us, gives to us, and that spreads through us and flows out of us. And so he says there in verse 1, if you look in chapter 8, verses 1 to 5, We see a great example of this. Paul says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means, of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor or the the privilege of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Paul points the church at Corinth to the example of the churches of Macedonia. So this would be the, the Philippian church, the Berean church, the Thessalonian church. Right, these churches that Paul told them, actually it was your example that stirred them up so much. He says that they responded to this call to provide for the relief of the, the, the poor saints in Jerusalem. And despite their extreme poverty, so almost certainly they would have been much, much poorer than the, the residents of Corinth. Corinth was a prosperous metropolitan city. 
right? Despite the fact that they were in what Paul says was a severe test of affliction, Paul says they gave beyond their means. Their poverty overflowed, Paul says, in a wealth of generosity. So much that they, they begged for the privilege, right? We know that's the word grace. They, they begged for the, the grace of being able, being allowed to give to the collection. They saw that their participation in providing for the needs of the saints in Jerusalem was actually God's grace to them, that it was such a privilege, such a joy. Right? Their proof that generosity is not a matter of what's in your bank account. Right? It's a matter of what's in your heart. And don't miss it. There in verse 1, Paul says, this generosity, it was not because they were just really sort of naturally generous people. It was not part of their cultural makeup. It wasn't something in them. But Paul says there in verse 1, it was the grace of God flowing through them. It was the grace of God that had been given to them as a church. That's what made them generous. God's gracious gift transformed the Macedonians and remade them in his image. God, the gracious giver, made a bunch of gracious givers out of the Macedonians. And that's what Paul wants for the Corinthians. He wants them to, and he's confident that they have and they will, he wants them to be filled up with the gracious generosity of God. Look at what he says there in chapter 9, verse 7. I think that explains what Paul says here. Chapter 9, verse 7, Paul says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. So Paul wants them to give, but he wants them to give the way that God has given and the way that God still gives to them. You see, God's love is not stingy. It is not reluctant, right? That's why it's so important that God's love is not necessary in that sense. Like God, God's grace is not a requirement that he's, he's obligated to give us. He gives, he's gracious because it brings him joy because that's who he is. God doesn't give the bare minimum. He doesn't send a halfway salvation that brings us into a merely tolerable eternity. But Paul reminds us that God sent his son, his beloved son, to usher us into a salvation and a future far more glorious than anything we can imagine, right? He became poor, right? That's, that's what we're celebrating, right, at Christmas and at, at Easter, right? Jesus became poor, but, but the rest of it's true as well, so that you could be rich, God is generously giving you all things. God sent his son to usher in salvation and a future far more glorious than anything we could imagine. And every other gift sort of falls under that. My, my guess is that your experience is that God's given you far more than you need to get by on a daily basis. That God's generosity to you in the spiritual realm has in some small way been mirrored by his generosity in providing for your physical needs. And so there in verse 7, Paul says, in light of that, there's two ways you should not give. He says, God does not want you to give reluctantly or under compulsion. Because God doesn't give reluctantly. And God doesn't give under compulsion. And so we shouldn't give begrudgingly with a sour expression. We, we shouldn't give because our arm is being twisted. We shouldn't give just to appear like we're generous or to avoid being made to feel guilty. Now, Paul says this is a heart decision, that you should give what's in your heart to give. And so again, it's clear. The example of the Macedonians makes it clear. Paul makes it clear again here that what matters is not the amount that you give. What matters is the posture of your heart, right? God, end of verse seven, loves a cheerful giver. Think about how encouraging that is, right? Back in chapter 5, so chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 9 to 10, we thought about this a month or so ago. Paul said this. He said, so whether we are at home or away, speaking of Jesus, he says, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Right, Paul says we are all going to face the judgment seat of Christ, and so we live our lives in such a way as to please him. And so here, when you get to chapter 9, Paul tells you a way that you can be pleasing 
a way that you can be certain pleases the Lord Jesus so that when you face him at that judgment seat, he will look on this particular action and you can be certain he will be pleased. And what is that action? Well, Paul says, cheerful generosity. We can be sure, beyond any shadow of a doubt, that cheerful generosity brings joy and pleasure to the Lord and that it elicits his approval. God loves it when his children give cheerfully and happily and joyfully. Friends, that's good news. Remember what the Lord Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verses 3 to 4. He says, when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Again, God is not the recipient here. God is no man's debtor. God sees your generosity, and he's like, I'm going to reward that. Right? God, God's not looking, being like, whew, I'm glad somebody covered that. Right? God has a plan, in fact, to, to reward the generosity of his children when it's done cheerfully and from the heart. So this means you don't have to be rich in order to be pleasing to the Lord. Because God is actually more concerned with your heart than with the size of your gift. He's more concerned that you trust him, that you delight in him, that you have drunk deeply from the wells of his grace so that you're able to give whatever you can give cheerfully. Right? Paul even says that in chapter 8, verse 12. He says this. He says, if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what the person has, not according to what he does not have. That is to say, the amount isn't the most important thing. You give according to what you have, and if you, if you don't have, that's understandable and fine. You can't give away what you don't have. If you don't have a lot, you won't be able to give a lot. But the readiness, the, the spirit behind it is what matters. So kids, this is great news. Even if your piggy bank is not particularly full, even if your allowance isn't very much, you can please God because he's not concerned with the size of the gift that you give. You can please God by cheerfully giving to meet a need. So if we're honest, we're not always cheerful givers. It sounds good. We can see the connection between God's generosity and our cheer, but sometimes it doesn't feel like that. And it does strike me there's, there's probably two main obstacles to our cheerful generosity. And I think the first is simply the obvious love of money. We, we like nice things. We want ease and comfort and pleasure. And wealth can promise us those things. But as Christians, we have something better than money. We have something better to treasure, something better to love and cling to. And again, Paul points us to the grace of God, to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, who became poor in every way for our sakes, so that we might actually become rich in all the ways that really matter. So when we contemplate the generosity of God towards us while we were still his enemies, when we remember that God could have just laid down a law and given us a command and say, give me everything you've got, like a sort of cosmic bank heist, and we remember that instead of that, he comes to us and he bids us in his love to give joyfully, not because he doesn't have a better plan, but because it's actually a privilege to participate in his work because he actually wants to load our arms with more and better treasure. I think when we really, when we really internalize that, when we believe that, well, suddenly clinging to our money and the things that our money can buy, it just doesn't seem that important. It doesn't seem that lovely anymore. The second reason why we might not be cheerful in our giving is fear. Right? We worry that if we give money away, we won't have enough for ourselves. We won't have enough for retirement. We won't have enough for college payments. We won't have enough for the new car we feel like we might need or, or the bigger house. But brothers and sisters, God has promised to take care of us. He has, he has promised to enrich us in every way so that we can be generous in every way. You know, that might not mean me getting everything I might like or want, but there's no need to be afraid. Your Father in heaven knows what you need, and he loves you. He's never left you, 
He's never failed you and he never will fail you. Again, the Macedonians in chapter 8 are a great example. They were extremely poor, but completely unafraid. They were still able to be generous. They understood they were completely dependent on God for everything. And so the way that they expressed that dependence was not by clinging on very tightly to the very little they had, but they understood they expressed their trust in God by living in an open-handed, cheerfully generous way, seeing that even poor people like them could have the privilege of giving. I think it's wise if you're in a season where you're facing financial uncertainty, like for example, if you have three kids in college at once, right? If you're facing financial uncertainty, if you're uncertain about your job or uncertain about some other aspect of your financial future, if you're tempted to be anxious or fearful or stingy, I think that's the time to press in seriously into considering generosity, right? It's the time to make your priorities clear in your giving. Why is that? That sounds counterintuitive, right? That's not sound financial advice. But look at what Paul says there in verse 6 of chapter 9. He says the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Paul's expanding on a well-known proverb. You, you reap what you sow. Right? And he's applying it to this situation. If you sow, if you're a farmer and you go out and just sow a little bit of seed, you'll reap a thin harvest. That's just how things work. If you sow a lot of seed, you stand a much better chance of reaping uh, a large crop. And so what Paul doesn't give the Corinthians is an amount. Okay, here's how much I want everybody in the church to give. But he gives them a principle. He says, when you sow sparingly or haltingly, cautiously, reluctantly, that's how you reap, right? It's not too hard to understand what Paul's saying, right? If you seize the opportunity to give bountifully, that's how you'll reap, right? That only makes sense. Why would God give us more when we're only going to damage our souls by clinging onto it tightly? And why wouldn't he give more to his children who have shown that they're willing to joyfully, cheerfully sort of multiply it by giving it away to meet needs, right? Why wouldn't he be pleased to give more to those children who imitate his grace and generosity? Paul drives this point home powerfully in verse 9 of, of chapter 9. He says, as it is written, he has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your har the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. There in verse 9, Paul quotes from Psalm 112 about the generosity of a godly man. There in verse 10, he says that the same God who supplies seed and bread will increase the harvest of their righteousness but he's not being overly spiritual because then in verse, uh, the very next verse, verse 11, he says they're going to be enriched in every way. Right? God's going to care for all of their needs. But that, that enriching is never an end unto itself. He says God will enrich you in every way, not so that you'll be rich, but so that you'll be generous. He says God will enrich you in every way so that you can be generous in every way because being generous is better than being rich it's a more gracious way to live it's a it's a better reflection of who God is that's the point God is generous to you he's gracious to you and you now have the raw materials for generosity and grace church this is such great news for us that when God calls us to give he is, he is not out to take anything away from us, right? If, if God is, is calling us like a debt collector and saying, look, I gave you something, now give it back to me, right? If that's the case, then this, this passage is bad news, right? Or, or if you are on your own, right, and God is some sort of cosmic judge who has no intentions of helping you out but just checking to make sure you gave away a lot, right? But you've got to figure out how to come up with that then again, this is bad news. But that's not what the Apostle Paul is showing us. In reality, 
What God is calling us to here in chapters 8 and 9 is an invitation to participate in his joyful, gracious generosity that he's given so richly to us so that we can participate in his joy of giving. When we give, it's a way of living in light of the gratuity of God's universe. As we move towards need and provide for needs, we're just imitating our God. God's gracious, and that grace infects us. It, it, it gets inside of us. It makes us gracious, generous people. The very last thing to see briefly this morning, right? God is gracious. That grace infects us, and it flows out of us and infects other people as well. That's the last thing I want us to see. Look at how it spreads and infects people outside the church even. They're in chapter 9, verses 12 to 14. Paul says, for the ministry of this service, there's this collection for the saints, is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. So Paul's telling the church what's going to happen as a result of their gift. He says there in verse 12, it supplies the needs of the saints. So presumably he's talking about the saints in Jerusalem. It's, it's buying them bread so they don't starve to death. But even more than that, it's overflowing, he says, with to thanksgiving to God. As the people in Jerusalem experience God's gracious gift to them through the generosity of Christians they don't even know, they praise God for his kindness. Right? They will see the way that the Corinthians have responded to the gospel with generosity, and they will overflow with thankfulness. They will glorify God because of you, Paul says. How great is that? So I told you earlier in the service, we had, Seth and I had the privilege of sitting with Pastor Yusef and his wife as they wept and gave glory to God because of your generosity and the generosity of the people who built this building however many decades ago, that God had met their need through us, through you, through the people who built this building. Right? You see how it works. Generosity overflows to gratitude to God. Your generosity will be the answer to someone else's prayers so that they delight in God and glorify him and say, he heard me, he listened, he, he provided. Out of nowhere, there's this random church that wants us to meet in their building and to par partner with us in reaching Arabic-speaking people in this area. God, how amazing are you? Right? Generosity flows through God's people to others so that he might be praised and glorified. Maybe this helps us think through our plan to build a new building here on the North Lawn. Right, as I mentioned earlier, we are asking the congregation to entertain giving even more to provide for a larger meeting space uh, for our congregation. So we want to give generously to supply that need. And my guess is that We'll benefit from that in lots of ways. It'd be great to have more space, a proper baptistry, a nice entryway. But in reality, I think our grace-motivated generosity fits right into the narrative that Paul's giving us here in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. Because if we build this building, we are building it for other people. We are building it so that other people might thank God and glorify him. We're building it for people who aren't in the room today. We're building it in hopes that more space will mean that people can come and hear the gospel and come to know the Lord Jesus as their Savior. Right? We're hoping that people might come and be trained and sent out to tell other people about Jesus. Right? We're building it in the hopes that it will help us reach this community right? as we partner with Iglesia Bautista España Guilford, as we hopefully partner with this Arabic language church. Right? The goal of building a building is so that people here in this neighborhood and in this region and all around the world might ultimately one day overflow in thankfulness and gratitude to God. And Paul says maybe even pray for us joyfully because of your generosity. Right? You can see why the Macedonians thought this was a privilege, right? that they begged earnestly for this grace to be able to give generously. Brothers and sisters, we have these wonderful promises made to us when we are cheerful givers. We're promised the pleasure of our Father in heaven. We're promised that when we, that when we sow bountifully, we will reap bountifully, that God will supply all of our needs, that we have no need for fear. 
And we have this great hope that God might be pleased even to use our gifts to bring him glory and thanksgiving. That people all over the world might rejoice in God and even pray for us. And so as we think about the gracious generosity of God, and we think about our cheerful giving in light of it, again, I think the best thing we can do is come together to the Lord's table. Because it's here at the table that we are reminded of that truth that we started with, that God is a gracious giver. Here in the, the bread and in the cup, representing the broken body and the shed blood of Christ, we are reminded of God's great act of self-giving, that he hasn't withheld from us any good thing, not even the body and blood of his son. And we are reminded that whatever we may give, we only ever come to God with empty hands so that he might fill them up. And so let's pray together and let's come to the table. Oh God, we delight in who you are. We rejoice and we praise you as the one who is not constrained by any necessity, who lacks no thing, who needs nothing from us, but who freely gives. Father, we, we praise you as your unnecessary creation. We praise you because we live in a world of grace. We live in a world that we receive as a gift. We see the gift of your son. We see the gift of the food on our tables each day, the gift of work, the gift of money in our bank accounts, Father, and we see how incredibly kind and gracious you are. Would you infect us? Would you fill us by your Holy Spirit? Would you transform us so that we might beg earnestly for the privilege, the grace of, of acting like you, imitating you as our Heavenly Father? Would you make us a gracious and generous people? Father, we pray that whatever gifts we are able to give, whether they're large or small, we pray that our attitudes and our hearts would be pleasing to you. We pray that you would use uh, the generosity of this congregation to spread the good news about Jesus all around this area and around this world so that many might give thanks and rejoice. And we ask all these things in Jesus' beautiful name. Amen.